Friends, peace of our Lord be with you. Amen. Thank you. My tiny Icelandic nation of 340,000 people has the honor of having nurtured one Nobel Prize winner, and this is in literature. Halldór Laxness was born in 1902 and uh, received the prestige recognition in 1956, mainly for the novel Independent People. The novel is a scrutinizing and harsh diagnosis of Icelandic culture and people that had for centuries fought the rough and cruel land for living space, agriculture possibilities, and food to survive. The book's protagonist is an ordinary sheep farmer who shows a flinty determination to achieve independence from a feudal system that oppresses the poor and landless, but at an unimaginable cost for those close to him. Laxness made this reality his distinguished mark and his scene of choice. He wrote extensively about the primitive farming community in Iceland, as well as class division, common ignorance, and the cruelty the strong inflict on the weak. His countrymen and women did not always appreciate his writings and his books. And he was often accused of simple hatred towards his own country and its farmers, the pillars of the community, and going out of his way to be really nasty. But all of that changed when he received from the King of Sweden the Nobel Prize Medal in recognition for outstanding work in literature, vast in scope and deeply rewarding. So arriving to Reykjavik from Stockholm, by sea of course, Laxness was received by a jubilant and celebrating crowd on the docks. Now he truly was his nation's best son and worthy of all praise. And the nasty stuff he had written about them was all forgotten because he had been recognized from the outside. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Jesus says to the crowd that eagerly is waiting to hear what this son of Nazareth has to say in their synagogue on the Sabbath. The word has indeed preceded Jesus uh, on his way through Galilee to Nazareth. Word about miracles he performed and words of authority he had spoken. Indeed, to begin with, all those present in the synagogue spoke well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. And I tell you, that is the dream of every preacher, to be able to touch the, touch the hearts of the listeners, to create a sense of and to make real the study of scripture in the community 
and with the community. And that is what Jesus was able to do when the story begins. The congregation in Nazareth's house of worship have their eyes, ears, and all senses focused on him as he sits down and proclaims that the words of the prophet have been fulfilled in their hearing. And let's recall what Jesus had said, quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So the sermon goes pretty well until Jesus specifies just who are the poor, the captives and the oppressed. He refers to scriptural narratives the congregation knows well about the wit of Oseraphath in Sidon and Naaman the Syrian, making the point that although they are outsiders of Israeli community, they are included in God's saving act. And turns out, when the poor and captive and the oppressed are those who are not liked or trust, trusted or even feared in the first place, Jesus' sermon becomes much more difficult to hear for his own people. And this is met with such outrage that the congregation admiring Jesus' words just moments before, is willing and ready to get rid of him for good. Our journey through Epiphany continues with this account of the Nazareth encounter. The cardinal stories of the Magi and Jesus' baptism frame this season where we focus on the manifestation of Jesus as Christ to the world, to the whole world, to the shepherds, to the foreign kings, and to his own people. Jesus' identity as God's beloved son is revealed in his baptism. And in today's synagogue story, Jesus delivers what we can say is his programmatic vision. This is what I'm going to do. Bring good news to the poor. Look for ways to bring freedom to those in bondage. To announce God's acceptance of the undeserving, unwelcomed, and unexpected. And this brings us to Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that we are also contemplating during this season of Epiphany. And the link I see emerge between the encounter in Nazareth and today's epistle, the famous and widely known chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, is inclusivity and God's love for all. 
as Dr. Wesley explained so well last Sunday, standing here. And if you haven't listened yet, look it up. It is important to situate chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians within its larger context of chapter 12 and 14, where Paul is addressing issues related to spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of speaking in tongues. While it seems that the Corinthians themselves were overemphasizing the importance of this single gift, Paul is encouraging the congregation to recognize the necessity of all spiritual gifts and cautioning the congregation to temper the practice of speaking in tongues with the interpretation of those tongues and with prophecy. And given this context, it has been pointed out, the placement of chapter 13 here may at first seem odd, as it is different in style and content. It only mentions speaking in tongues like it's an unrelated to the whole thing. However, we can argue that chapter 13 is possibly the most central part of Paul's argument in chapters 12 to 14. Namely, that all gifts of the Spirit are important, and no one can claim she has better or more important gifts than the next. We can think of chapter 13 like the ham in the ham sandwich, very different from the bread on both sides. But really what makes the ham sandwich, what it is. Or we can think of it as an Oreo cookie. Uh, you have the cookies on pot, top and bottom, but it's the creamy middle that brings it home. Mm -hmm. And the secret ingredient is love. Chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians is one of the best known passages in the whole Bible. Even those who don't like Paul, for whatever reason, still hold this chapter in the highest regard, because love is good, right? Chapter 13 is frequently used in wedding ceremonies, uh, but every time we hear someone preach on chapter 13 in the first letter to Corinthians, we are reminded that what Paul is talking about has nothing to do with the kind of love we associate with marriage. And it is very important to read what Paul writes about love in the Corinthian context. Because right into a heated debate that could split and damage the church about the proper use of spiritual gifts, Paul is preaching on the importance of love across lines of difference. And here we should notice that when Paul talks about love, his emphasis is, about, is on the active nature of love, what love must do. And that's actually why it is such a good text to read at weddings. Because marriage and all relationships is about doing. Marriage and all significant relationships is a busy, active thing that never sees working. 
And that is where love comes in. In the text, we have seven action-based verbs that have to do with what love must do. To be patient, to be kind, to rejoice in the truth, to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope all things, and to endure all things. And then we have eight action verbs that have to do with what love should not do. Not to envy, not to boast, not to be arrogant, not to be rude, not to seek its own way, not to be irritable, not to be resentful, and not to rejoice in wrongdoing. The message to the church in Corinth is that love is what grounds them as a spiritual community and as the body of Christ. Love is what they as a community should pursue because only with love in the center and the ground of the Christian community, unity and difference can be acknowledged, respected, and indeed celebrated. Of all the good and great things the community in Corinth is pursuing, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, only love never ends. It is love that completes the community. Everything else is just partial. As Paul says in the first verses of the chapter, if I don't have love, I am nothing. What, you, what should we pursue as a church? According to Paul, not spiritual superiority, not claims to have monopoly over other communities on the truth, not to be an exclusive club around God's saving act in Christ. We should pursue love in unity and diversity, and we should do love. It's a long and deep tradition within Christian theology to view and describe love as a virtue. Indeed, faith, hope, and love are known as the three theological or spiritual virtues, who along with the four other cardinal virtues constitute the good and moral life, as we especially see in medieval spirituality and writings. And I actually think it is helpful to think about love in these terms. If we understand virtue as something you seek, work on, make a habit of, and let you be formed by, it makes a wonderful partner with faith, hope, and love as God's gifts. Because what good is a gift if you don't use it? In this season of epiphany, we should pursue and work on love as a gift and a virtue. In God's love, we can bring the light of Christ to those in darkness, to the poor, to the captives, to the blind, to the oppressed. And as a community of Christ, 
Christ who preached inclusivity and God's love for all. We are called to bring this good news to the world. A community in Christ, a community that knows unity and celebrates its diversity. A community who knows the reality of division and yet has in view the cross that binds us together is a community that can join Jesus where he is in Nazareth and walk along him in his ministry through polarized communities and to those who so desperately need to hear God's love for them. And that includes us as well. Amen. <laughs>